You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So C.S. Lewis wrote, When you've seen one, the next one becomes easier to spot. He's talking not about members of a church or about people who call themselves Christians. He's actually talking about spirit-filled followers of Jesus who are pursuing holiness. He describes this kind of person in Mere Christianity, one of his classic books, and he says this, and new members, I want you to hear this especially. This is what you have signed on for. He says, their very voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. They will not be very like the idea of religious people. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you are being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. Do you know anybody like that? They love you, he goes on. They love you more than others do, but they need you less. They will usually seem to have a lot of time. You will wonder where it comes from. And I strongly suspect, though how can I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even of creeds. In that way, I want you to hear this, in that way, to become holy is rather like joining a secret society. To put it at the very lowest, it must be great fun. (laughs) I love that last line. It must be great fun. Fun is definitely an overlooked word in the pursuit of holiness. So how have we missed that detail that is really not a detail at all? How have we come to define holiness as all the things we don't do rather than the rich treasure of possibility that it is? Holiness is the yearning of a person who orients toward life from a desire to live more fully. You should write that down. In fact, the best way to engage the message was with something to write on, something to write with, with your Bible in front of you. So if you've got all of those things, awesome. And if you're a note taker, write this down. Holiness is the yearning of a person who orients toward life from a desire to live more fully. Holiness is the yearning of a person who orients toward life from a desire to live more fully. It's the cry to be something more, more love, more joy, more peace, more presence, more perfect in love, not in the sense of gaining perfection on your own strength, but in the sense that this life can be more. Do you believe that, friends? This life can be more? That we're not here simply to survive it? I need to know that somebody in this first service believes that. Thank you. The desire to be holy comes with the great desire to put myself in God's hands and in his hands to be something more. And life rooted in that spirit, in that pursuit, must it must be great fun. So if it's not fun for you, you need to stop and ask yourself, why is that? That's the spirit I'm after as we explore some topics that are fleshed out 
Uh, we're just using as our inspiration. We're not following the book, you know, lockstep, but we're using as our inspiration a book by Rich Velotis this month. Uh, the book is called The Deeply Formed Life. Think of this sort of like a Maymester in school. Just a little short course, a May course, and what it means to live a deeply formed life, the holy life. I have to tell you, this is a risky series because Rich addresses a couple of topics in this book that are sensitive. He uses some language that's gonna rile some people. I can't wait to have those conversations with you. So why do it? Well, because this approach to holiness that he gives us, this inward and outward approach, these inward and outward rhythms seem healthy to me, like a healthy way to talk about topics that the church should care about and should be engaged in. So he gives us this gentle and reasonable way to think about or that, that rhythm or connection between the journey in and the journey out. So we'll talk today about the contemplative life. And the next week we're gonna talk about racial reconciliation. And then after that, we'll talk about missional presence and then sexual wholeness. And then we'll end the conversation with interior examination. Can you hear the rhythm between the journey in and the journey out? And our goal with the series is not right thought so much as an encounter with Christ. It matters, it matters a lot to me that we, every one of us, begin to encounter the heart of God and the mind of Christ. It's what we just experienced in our prayer time together. You know, I've, I've said this so often. In a, in a conversation with the creator of the universe, I am probably not the more intelligent voice in, this, in the room. And so what I'm asking for you to do as we engage these topics is, is let, let the book and let our, our conversations on Sunday morning spark your thinking, but much, much more than that, I wanna ask you and invite you and challenge you to let the journey inward take you toward Jesus and his voice and his mind so that you have a better sense of what you personally are convinced and convicted of. So let's jump in. This morning I want to look at one scene with two parts in Mark chapter 1. Mark 1 is among my favorite chapters in the Bible. But I'm going to resist preaching the whole chapter this morning because we're going to walk through that whole book, Mark, uh, the book of Mark, in, in, uh, in the summer. That's going to be our summer book study. So I'm kind of excited about that. That's my advanced plug. We'll be in the, Mark, uh, the book of Mark in June and July. But today I want to focus on one scene in Mark chapter 1 beginning with verse 29. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, okay, let me see where I'm going to stop. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. I want you to circle that little word, and. I'm going to say something about it in a little bit. And she began to wait on them. So do you notice this, that Jesus will touch anybody? I mean, Jesus will touch anybody. He seems completely unafraid of cooties and germs and viruses and pus and skin diseases and fevers and blood. And, and that's the first thing I notice in this scene. In a world where there weren't medicines or creams for every illness or an, an, antibiotics to protect you, Jesus touched 
just about everybody. In just a minute, we're, a whole bunch of other people are going to come into that room. No social distancing. And he's going to touch every single one of them. Which means Jesus is not afraid of you. Your germs, your infirmity, whether it's internal or external. Your problem. Even the one you think Jesus is afraid of, he's not. Some of you will remember that time when I was in India. We were at a home for the poorest of the poor in one of the poorest countries in the world. The whole place, and this was a home for people who had no place else to go. I mean, some, some of their, their families would just drive up, push them out of the car, and drive off. I mean, it was horrible. The whole place smelled of urine. No one in that place was getting a bath, ever. So someone on our team, because <laughs> we were there for days, someone on our team had the idea that maybe we could bless the women who were there by painting their fingernails. Just give them something special. So we got some nail polish and passed it around among our team members. I am not a painted nail person, um, but I'm a team player. So I got some polish, and I sat there with everybody else, and I and I waited, and, and somebody came up to me, and I began to paint her nails using my left hand because I'm left-handed. And pretty quickly, I could tell she was uneasy about that arrangement. She didn't speak English, but after some gesturing and some facial expressions, which I will not give you here, I got it. She did not like me using my left hand. And many parts of the world, your left hand is used for hygiene, and so you don't touch people with it. But I didn't have any choice because I am left-handed. She was not going to get paint anywhere on her hand if I tried with my right hand. She gave it a minute or two, and then she asked if somebody else could do it. And there was this huge moment for me. And here was this woman, dirty, mentally unstable, smelling of urine, and I was the untouchable. And I wondered in that moment how often I have done that to others. Kept my distance, asked to sit at a different table or, or, or in another room because someone wasn't up to my standards. Meanwhile, there's Jesus holding this woman's hands, this woman who has a fever, and eating her food just a few minutes later healing people with demons, touching lepers, without gloves and a mask. And that same Jesus who touched them is touching you, is, is, is willing to heal you also. Does not actually see much difference between you and them. Let that sink in. Does not actually see much difference between you and them. And he didn't heal this woman so she'd get up and make dinner, Remember, I asked you to circle that word and. He healed her and she got up and served Jesus. Which is exactly the right response for a miracle. It isn't for the wow factor. It is so we can get up and serve Jesus. Do you hear that, Gwen? It is so we can get up and serve Jesus. I want you to look again at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. There's something here I don't want to miss before we move on. Jesus had friends, and the friends he hung out with were the same ones with which he did ministry. 
There it is. <laughs> he was in their homes, and he was in their lives, and he was meeting their families. He had them in context. And just this thought makes me want to say something about the people I'm in ministry with every single day. Our church is remarkably blessed, isn't it, with a staff team that is, that we really love each other. We actually really do love each other. <laughs> we see each other on our days off. Jenny, Chris, Taylor, Ver Heather, Veronica, and Will, these are solid people. They have hung in together through some tough times. We have a shared story now. And I've learned this. I've learned that a shared story is a powerful thing. When a group of people has a shared story, when they're in each other's homes and lives, sharing food, sharing prayer, sharing burdens, understanding each other in context, it binds people together in a powerful way. And so Velotis, in chapter two of his book about contemplative rhythms, his fourth practice that he invites us into is a life of stability. That's a powerful word. In a world that is used to church hopping and church shopping and, oh, it's COVID, so I'm going to change everything. <laughs> Jesus invites us close enough to learn each other's families, to know each other's infirmities, to be in each other's lives. You can't do that coming in on Sunday and leaving quickly. You just can't. That's a different kind of church than what we're after at Mosaic where you can probably say it with me, community is essential. Yeah, I don't wanna miss that. I saw, it, I saw it on Friday night at Exceptional Circles. I have to tell you guys, last Friday night, this, like two nights ago, we had 75 people in our student room. 75 people who showed up for life on the spectrum. 40 young adults, along with their parents and caregivers, and we sang karaoke, and we sang, but we played Jenga, and we ate pizza, and we sat on the porch. It was beautiful, I have to tell you, it was beautiful. And the parents had time to talk with an Easter Seals rep about services, and it was just so good. And I asked one parent while they were leaving if this was helpful, and he said, it's just nice to know you're not the only one. Friends, a shared story is a powerful thing. So what if Jesus is going to the homes of his friends, not because someone has hoodwinked him into coming into their house to heal somebody else, but because he actually wants to enjoy the people God has given him? Because doing ministry and miracles and watching people get healed is actually fun. What if... All right, look at verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus, the, the reason it's after sunset is because it was the Sabbath, so they had to wait until the Sabbath was over. They're standing there with their bags in their hands at the door waiting for Sabbath to be over. So after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many with, who have various diseases, touching them, just touching anybody. Jesus touches anybody. He also drove out many demons. But, underline this next part, he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
This whole town of people came rushing out of their houses as soon as the Sabbath was over so they could meet with Jesus. As soon as the sun set, they lined up the whole town. The, the, your version probably says Jesus healed many, but the Greek actually says Jesus healed many, 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 many people. People pressed in to see this Jesus, this healer, this different breed of human. What made him so attractive? Look at verse 34. Jesus healed many, many, many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. That is a hard sentence. Why wouldn't Jesus want the demons to confess him? Unless we look at the context, it makes no sense. Why wouldn't Jesus want the enemy confessing him as Lord and God? Here's the explanation I like best. It actually comes from John Stott. Maybe, maybe it's because Jesus isn't there in that moment to win an argument with the enemy. Maybe Jesus is there in that moment because he actually loves the people who have come to him. Maybe Jesus isn't there in that moment because he's trying to win an argument with the enemy. Maybe Jesus is there in that moment because he actually loves the people who have come to him, because he feels this as holy, as a responsibility. I have to tell you, on Friday night at, at, at Life on the Spectrum, I wanted to whip my phone out and take pictures of everything and slap it up on the screen today and on Facebook and show everybody what we're doing. And I had this line in my head and this interpretation of this line. And I could hear Jesus saying, why don't you just love the people who are in this room? Not make a billboard out of it. Just love the ones God has sent. This makes sense. Maybe Jesus doesn't want anybody to think he's just flexing and strutting. In other words, Jesus didn't heal people and cast out demons to prove who he was. Jesus was loving people in that house, and Jesus heals because Jesus loves, because Jesus has the heart of the Father. So this scene is Jesus loving people the way Jesus loves people, touching everybody, loving them. And he doesn't need a demon to define that love for him. He doesn't need a demon to out him. He is there by the will of the Father, living out the love of the Father, not, and probably having the time of his life. <laughs> I wrote a blog about this idea last week. I had a whole other um, context for it. I was talking about other things, but I think the principle applies. I wrote about, okay, yet another car accident I had. It's not nothing new. This was years ago, okay? But these are the only stories I have, so you'll have to live with it. This one was, this one was not even a fender bender, and it was years ago. I need to say that again. <laughs> I was pulling up to a red light, and somehow I bumped in front in the, to the car in front of me. That can be so tricky. Um, there was zero damage to my car, and there was just a smudge on the, on the bumper of the car in front of me, a black mark, the kind that can be rubbed off. And in most any other case, this kind of thing would have re resulted in the two people getting out, surveying the damage, one offering an apology, and the other one t taking it, and everybody goes on about their life. I have been on the giving end of that kind of grace, so I know it happens. 
but not this time. The person whose car I bumped was this tiny woman, older than me. She, she jumped out of the car, and she just began to pitch a fit. I could tell by her accent that English was not her first language, and I struggled to follow everything she was saying, but I got the message that this car was brand new to her, and she, did, she was mad it had been hit. And what was worse is that she didn't know what to do next, but she was not going to let the moment pass. So when I saw her agitation, I, I convinced her, and it took some convincing to get her out of the road. Just pull over into a parking lot right here, and we'll call 911. We'll call the cops, and we'll, uh, and we'll file a report. I, I probably could have talked her out of it, probably could have wiped the smudge off the bumper. But I knew that, was, that helping her feel safe and loved meant doing things the way that made her feel safe and loved. So when the cop arrived and he, he asked us, you may not know this as well as I know this, but they ask you to write, down, uh, to write down what happened. And they want you to do the writing. They don't write it, they want you to do the writing. And, and so she even got madder at that point. And it took me a minute to realize she didn't write in English. So I, I, I asked the officer if I could help her fill out her accident report. And I promised her, I will write whatever you tell me to say, and we can let the officer verify that I've written whatever you tell me to say. I just want to help you out. It meant that I would be writing against myself, but I knew it was the right thing to do. It would cost me, but I knew it was the right thing to do. When it was all over, the policeman thanked me for being gracious. He didn't give me a ticket, thanks be to God. Um, the three of us together, we, we, we managed our way through a really awkward thing. And, and when we left, all three of us kind of felt blessed by it. Even though I'd had to work against myself. Whatever that was, that spirit was, that caused three people to work together to resolve an issue, that's the spirit of Jesus in this scene. Do you hear it? He's not in it to be proven right. He's not in it so everybody in the room will know who's got the power and who doesn't. His attention isn't even on the demons. He's simply doing the right thing, working from the Father's heart, a heart of compassion. He's caring for souls. And that's how Jesus, listen to me, that's how Jesus can find joy in a broken world. He doesn't focus on the demons. Come on. You should probably write that down for yourself. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Am I focused on the demons this morning or on Jesus? So how did a very human Jesus manage to have that heart every time he was called on? Look at verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everybody's looking for you! And Jesus replied, Let's go someplace else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there too. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is Jesus underscoring the fact 
that he's not just a miracle-making machine. His call is to a gospel, and he is so sure of that call that he can stand up and walk out of a house full of miracle-hungry people because the need is not the call. The call is the call. You should write that down, too, especially those of you who have a, servant, a serving area. The need is not the call. The call is the call which is what Jesus said in John 15. Jesus said the joy is in the abiding, not in the accomplishments, not in filling the needs, but in a relationship that is in rhythm with God's ways and in sync with his commands. Verse 35, look at it one more time. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. There it is. I mean, that's the power source for everything that happened in the scene before it and everything that happens in the scene after it. That fuels everything. The healing of Simon's mother-in-law, the healing of all those people who came to him at night, the hunger to preach the good news in neighboring villages, the strength and power and want to to walk away from very cool things so the gospel can be preached in other places too. All the energy for that comes in verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. That's the punchline for the whole thing, and the fuel and the secret sauce for all the rest of it. This is how Jesus found his heart for people. This is how Jesus found the, the humility and the wisdom and the discernment to know when he should be in this room and when he needed to leave this room to go to a different room. This is how Jesus knew how to work without the distraction of a demon. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a solitary place where he prayed. Do you want to know the heart of God? Do you want to enter into the heart of God? You want to know how the mind of God works and how the will of God works in your life? Do you want to see miracles? Do you want to make a difference in the world and catch a rhythm of inward and outward holiness? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. That's the holy rhythm. And what Velotis calls, a, uh, it's the holy rhythm for, that, that, that corrects, that heals. It's the holy rhythm that heals what Velotis calls a dangerously depleted life. Not all of you are dangerously depleted. Some of you live a lovely, unhurried retirement life. God bless you. And some of you are running hard from one thing to the next. And if you're not running externally, your brain is going. I had somebody tell me, a counselor tell me one time, you have a very active brain. Some of you have a very active brain. You are dangerously depleted. And you figure, since you're checking the box, you know, you've got all the stuff happening, you're okay. And you do that thing we all do. 
I'll start when dot, dot, dot. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house. He went to a solitary place where he prayed. In the Deeply Formed Life, chapter 2, you get a, a, a strong start at several, uh, a description of several inner practices. He talks about silent prayer and Sabbath keeping, the slow reading of scripture, and the commitment to stability, which we've mentioned already. This morning, I just want to focus on one as we close. It's what Rich calls silent prayer, what I would call contemplative prayer. I want to tell you that lately, this has been the lifeline for me. Simply sitting in the presence of God. I've discovered that, I kind of discovered it, uh, in that dangerously depleted state where I lost words for everything that was going in my life and, and all the things that have me stirred up inside and I would find myself just sitting in my chair and I didn't have the words for it and I stumbled into, okay, yeah, that's right, I remember, contemplative prayer, yeah. So I gave my permission, to self-permission just to sit there, just to sit and listen and God has been slowly filling me back up as I just sit. No agenda, I just sit. Soaking, as Karen Daughtry would call it. I gotta tell you, until we learn how to sit in his presence, no agenda, no ask, I think it would be hard to go deeper into the spiritual life with Christ if you're not able to sit in his presence without agenda. This is communion with God. You know, the person I think about in the scripture is Deborah, the Old Testament prophet, who basically led the people of Israel to an unlikely victory against a big enemy. She's not a warrior, first of all. She was, she was a prophet who stepped up because nobody else would. <laughs> and when she stepped onto the platform of strategic leadership, she was coming out from under a tree where she had been practicing for years the prophetic discipline of listening for the voice of God. It was sitting under a tree, learning the voice of God that allowed her to know something that was completely counterintuitive for their culture, that she would lead the troops into a battle. So she teaches me that if you really hunger to lead spiritually, if you want to be there when the time comes to step up, or if you just want to be there when it's all over, not burned out and, and having written everything off, but there, then learn to listen for the voice of God. Knowing how to discern the voice of God is literally the difference between life and death for anybody who follows Jesus. And we learn to, to discern his voice by listening to his voice. Yesterday morning, 11 of us gathered in here and we were practiced the presence of God together for two hours. And by practice, I mean we listened. We sat and listened, we listened for each other, and we heard things. It's crazy to me that sitting and listening for the voice of God is the hardest thing in the world, and it is yet, it's so, there's nothing to it, there's nothing. 
You know how you do it? You sit down and you shut up. That's it. Which part of that equation is harder for you? For me, the sitting down is harder. For somebody else in this room, the shutting up is probably really hard. Set yourself a timer. Here's what I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to tell you. Because I was thinking about this too. You know, here's what we do so often. Is, is when we're talking about the, the, a life of holiness, or we're talking about being spirit-filled, or when we're talking about the disciplines. You know, we say, I just want this for you, I just want this for you. It's sort of like sitting in your car, and, and you don't know the destination you go to, and so you plug it into your GPS, and rather than your GPS giving you every single step, your GPS says, I just want you to get there! I just want you to get there. And you're like, I want to get there too, but you've got to tell me how. I don't want to tell you how. I just want you to get there. We do that to each other a lot in the spiritual life. We assume that everybody knows when everybody doesn't know. So here's a way to walk into contemplative prayer. Set your timer. If you have uh, Echo or whatever the other person is in your house who talks to you, Tell Alexis, yeah. We don't, have, we don't use Alexis because Steve doesn't like talking to another woman in the house. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. <laughs> so we call it Echo. If you don't have one of those, use your phone. Just set your timer. If two minutes is all you can manage when you get started, set it for two minutes. If you can manage five minutes, try five minutes. If you've been doing this before and you know you might be able to take a little bit longer, set your timer for a little longer. Set a timer and then find a chair that's not facing everything that needs to be done. It does not work for me to do this at my desk. Sit in a chair in his presence with something to write on so you can record what you hear. Somebody asked yesterday, how do you know when it's God's voice? And the only answer I can give you to that question is, you know it when you've practiced it. But until you're sure of it, just write down anything you hear, including, oh my goodness, I need cottage cheese. I gotta write that down. Just write it down. And then it's gone from your head. And then you don't have to worry about it again. You can move on. And maybe, just maybe, you'll hear things like, I am so grateful you want to spend time with me. And this, this is all I ever wanted. And it's going to be okay. And you will live. And maybe he'll tell you, you don't have to be angry about that thing. Or I do want to heal you, but I need you to participate. Maybe you'll hear, you're not alone. The promise is this, that as God finds you faithful to sit beneath the palm of Deborah, learning his voice, channeling his wisdom, God will be faithful to show up and pour in. You'll begin to hear things that sound smarter than you could have thought of yourself. That's a real key right there. You'll begin to develop hungers for specific areas where God is working, maybe in a life or a situation or an area of the world, and you'll begin to bear supernatural fruit in the world. Your journey in will always lead to a journey out. 
she got up and she served him. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. No music. We did this before, and now I'm going to do it again, and with the benefit of a little teaching, a little context. Will you listen and be present? Trust the voices you hear. Let him speak. Maybe you've got this. This comes to you like second skin. Maybe this is the quietest, the most still, the most undistracted you've been in weeks or months or bless your heart years. What I want you to hear is that Jesus has been waiting for this moment so he can speak be with you. Just be with you. Just be with you. And that is his heart. That we would be still and know that he is God. So I'm going to ask now, is I'm just going to ask everybody to stand, and then if you go ahead and stand. some of you want to come and you just want to get on your knees here at the front and if that if you're one of those who just wants to come and get on your knees and and now talk to God from that more educated place you're welcome to come now you're welcome to come and just be with the Lord in a posture that really reflects his holiness and your humility some of you want to sit right back down because you started taking notes and Jesus was speaking and you want to stay in that place some of you want to respond through this opportunity for worship. If you'd like prayer, I will be up here and I would love the chance to pray together with you. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you for anything that you've heard today or anything that's in your life. Lord, my prayer for all of us is that we'd be so completely, so completely unafraid of your voice, so completely unafraid 
of the quiet still. And we come to know you in a deeper, more mature way. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.